when death was arrested, our life began for those who are in Christ. Amen? That is something that we can rest in and trust in for eternity. So this morning, I'd like you to take your Bibles, and we're going to be looking at Exodus chapter 20, and then we are going to be looking at uh, other passages in Deuteronomy, Numbers, and I'd like you to turn there as I tell you to, because it's important for the understanding uh, of this particular commandment, which is going to be the sixth commandment that we're looking at uh, in the Word of God. And remember, the commandments clearly, clearly uh, spell out what is involved in our relationship with God, but also in our relationship with others. And so the first commandment, We recognize that he alone is God, and he is to have first place in our hearts and lives. Secondly, the second commandment uh, showed us that man must not attempt to make any visible representation of the invisible God. To do so would actually distort who God is and his holiness. The third commandment brings uh, us to a place where we are responsible for taking up the name of God. As we uh, go into our world and as we live our life, we are to be a, an example of, uh, to a dying world on how we treat and honor the name of God by our words, our deeds, and our thoughts. The fourth commandment brought us the responsibility of worshiping God one day in seven, attending to God's honor and to our own soul on that day. And then, of course, the fifth commandment brought us to the responsibility to honor our fathers and our mothers. And today, sixthly, we are going to look at our responsibility in the sixth commandment, and that's found in our Bibles in verse number 13, and it says this, you shall not murder. So what is our responsibility for that commandment? To care for and protect others' welfare and their physical life. It's all our responsibilities to do that before God. Now there's much more entailed in that, which we're going to look at this morning. So let's pray as we we proceed today. Father, we thank you uh, for this privilege to come and be able to have Bibles and be able to open them up and read them and study them and take them home with us and uh, read them throughout the week, and think about uh, the words of God in our mind, um, that our very mind was created for that purpose, so our ears can hear your truth and our minds can think about it. And I pray as, as that happens, that Holy Spirit, you would take us and you would transform our minds so we would know the good and the acceptable and the perfect will of God. And then, Lord, that we would put into practice what we're learning, that our whole character would be transformed by you so we can be your vessels on this earth to bring the light and the salt to those who who don't have it yet. And I pray that you would use us in that way. And specifically understanding this commandment as we go from the Old to the New Testament. And I pray in Christ's name, amen. So at first glance, at first glance, you, you have to admit that this commandment, actually it's only two words in the Hebrew, uh, 
this commandment is is uh, is something that um, seems straightforward as soon as you read it. However, there are further scriptural boundaries that surround this command, in or, and, and we need to find out what they are so we can grasp the scope and the control of this particular commandment. In today's culture, there's still plenty of killing and murder. In fact, uh, one statistic says that at, uh, by age 18, uh, our children, with all the media we have, will witness 80,000 or more murders. Now, these th- this makes children numb uh, to life and often robs them of the preciousness of life. Uh, but that's the day which we live in, and that has to be controlled uh, by parents so they don't get a, a steady diet of, of what the world is giving now, we as people, though, have not advanced beyond uh, such sinful and depraved behavior. It's all around us. It's every day it's in the news. It makes uh, good novels and uh, great movies. Uh, but the more and more we drift away from God's holy standards and the biblical understanding of the true nature of man, the more we opt out for a new morality in which everything is being redefined by new ideas. For example, a number of psychologists say that murderers are mentally ill and need simply need therapy. Some and most soci- uh, so, uh, sociologists uh, claim that murderers are usually helpless victims of an unjust society and in their taking of someone else's life is just simply lashing out against the society in which they have been oppressed and depraved. Uh, or deprived, excuse me. Erwin Lutzer said this, it is a dangerous thing when we too easily accept new ideas as truth. And unfortunately in our day, our news wants to push upon us things that are not true at all, but they make them seem true, and if, if they pounded on us so much that they become true to people even though they're not. And yet, uh, as we come to the Word of God, thank the Lord, when we come to the Word of God, what we get is truth. We get pure truth. And there's something, there's a certain ring about truth, that when something is true, you know it's true. And, and, and when you read the Word of God, you know, yes, that is true. I cannot argue with that. And so when we come to this commandment that we have to realize this commandment contains a principle, but we, we have to finally kind of flush out the meaning of it uh, throughout Scripture. And that's what i like to do this morning. And so this sixth commandment, really, we, were, we see first that there's a principle revealed in this commandment, you shall not murder. And of course, that is, there, there's a distinction in this command. And the distinction is to care for and to protect the welfare of human life. All loss of life is a serious matter in Scripture. The reason for the seriousness is that God has placed an, a, an emphasis on the sacredness of human life. 
and even his own sovereignty over that life. It, it, only he has the right to say when it begins and when it ends. See, the Bible places a high premium on life of a human being because unlike other creatures, we were created uniquely. Humans are unlike animals that can be killed to be eaten and sacrificed in an offering. And the reason why taking a human life is so serious in Scripture is because life is made in the image of God, in the image de gay in Scripture, that as it says in right in the first chapter of the Bible, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So right in the word of God, human beings are of unique value in the sight of God. And that is why when we get to a chapter like Genesis chapter 9, it prohibits the taking of human life for that specific reason. And I want you to notice in this passage right here, in Scripture, it says this in Genesis 9:5, Surely I will require your lifeblood from every beast I will require it, and from every man, from every man's brother, I will require the life of man. Whoever sheds man's blood by man." His blood shall be shed, for in the image of God he made man. That's significant. The reason why we're so different from every other created uh, thing is because we were created in the image of God. We have certain aspects and characters of, of that God wanted in our being that he has in his being. So the act of killing a human being is a killing act against God himself. Murder is a sin against a victim, against a family, and against God. And there's no such thing as a perfect murder. The reason for that is because God is all-knowing and sovereign over all things. No one can hide that deed from him. In fact, right in the beginning again in the book of Genesis when Cain killed his brother Abel. Look what it says there in Genesis 4, in verse 8 through 10. I do have it on the screen. It says this, Cain told Abel his brother, and it came about when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel his brother and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel your brother? And he says, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? And he says, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. The Lord will vindicate and punish all who take human life, whether they could get caught in this life or not. They will stand before God for this because God knows what has happened and no one will get away with it. So, thou shalt not murder. This word murder is really the Hebrew word ratshak. And it's closely, it's a word closely related to physical force and violence. The term uh, really 
should not be translated as just simply kill. And the reason why is because there is a difference between killing and murder. And we're going to see that this morning. But this word ratchak actually is translated in 1 Kings 21.19 as manslayer, or as kill, and then in Numbers 35.6 as manslayer. Uh, it doesn't necessarily, the word itself, make a distinction between premeditated or involuntary killing. So in other words, the context in which this term is used often determines the meaning. This can be identified by different passages that this word, murder or ratsack, uh, is, is used. So there's, in other words, there's different kind of killing that the Bible teaches us. Different kind of killing. And of course, the first one would be that of, uh, well, when, when we think about killing, the, the different kinds, there, there, there's two general things that must be taken into consideration when we consider murder and killing. The circumstances in the matter, and the Bible does definitely use that and, and show us that. And secondly, the intentionality of the killing. What was the intention and why did that take place? So the first killing that the Bible does mention is that of involuntary killing. Uh, other words used to describe this killing is involuntary manslaughter, accidental killing, negligence or negligent uh, uh, homicide that is a, is a negligence, uh, and then also this involuntary means that there was a lack of intent or design to commit the killing. Now, take your Bibles and turn right there, you're in Exodus, turn to Deuteronomy, and look at chapter 4, verse 4 through 41. Chapter 4, verse 41 and 42, excuse me. Chapter 4, verse 41 and 42. Notice the language here. It says, then Moses, in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 41, set apart three cities across the Jordan to the east, Verse 42, that a manslayer might flee there who unintentionally slew his neighbor without having enmity toward him in time past. All right, so in other words, in that passage of Scripture, we see that there was something that was not intentional. In other words, in this case, it was an accident. It was an accidental death. Now, look at this, this passage in Numbers. It says this, but if he pushed him suddenly without enmity or threw something at him without lying in wait or with any deadly object of a stone and without seeing it drop on him so that he died while he was not his enemy nor seeking his injury. All right, so there are circumstances in which the Bible teaches that uh, it is not murder, it is actually an involuntary or an accidental killing. That happens even today when, when people could uh, lose their life because of an accident that happens on the job or on the road or something. It was somebody didn't have an intent in their heart to do that. It just happened. There, there's, not, there's nothing you can do about that. And so those are still uh, painful and hurtful times when someone gets robbed away from a family. It is something that not easily forgotten by people, even if it didn't have intent behind it. 
All right, and so that brings me to the second kind of murder uh, or killing in the Bible, and that's premeditated killing. Of course, premeditated killing, premeditated murder has an, an intent and a design in the act of taking a human's life, such as harboring some hatred or grudge towards a person, some anger or malice, some deceit, some uh, or some personal gain that someone could acquire by taking someone else's life. Uh, there's a plan also to carry out the act. And then there is also the actual carrying out of the act. And someone, of course, can be convicted of murder and not actually have murdered someone if the intent and the plan was there and could be proved. Somebody, of course, there would be lesser charges because a life was not actually lost, but nonetheless, somebody can actually go to jail for that. So in Deuteronomy chapter 19, now we're looking at Deuteronomy 19, and if you notice, you were just in chapter 4, it says this about that, and I do want you to point, see and, and notice the different things that are indicated in this particular passage concerning premeditated killing, all right? And it's this, notice, it says, but if there is a man who hates his neighbor and lies in wait for him and rises up against him and strikes him so that he dies and he flees to one of these cities, then the elders of the city shall send and take him from there and deliver him into the hand of the avenger of blood that he may die. And then it says there in verse 13, you shall not pity him but you shall purge the blood of the innocent from Israel that it may go well with you. So in other words, in this passage of Scripture, we see the plan and the intent in the Word of God that shows us that this was definitely a murder. Uh, this was taking someone's life with intent and design, and of course we see that the, that leads to a certain penalty. And of course, there are different kinds of penalty in Scripture concerning uh, what killing would actually the result of it would be. All right, and the first one is this: the loss of liberty. That would be one of the first ones. Now, if you noticed in uh, Deuteronomy 19, if you are still there in that passage, if you go up to verse number one, you'll find that that the Lord gave the Levites, six cities of refuge. All right, and he gave that to them for an inheritance, but he, also those cities were given for the purpose if someone killed someone unintentionally, then they were to flee to one of those cities of refuge for their own safety, that the cities of refuge were established by God's law to prevent vigilante violence against someone who is suspected of killing someone, whether it be proven or not, whether the person did it intentionally or not. So in other words, if a person in unintentionally killed someone, they were at that point to run to that city, the nearest city they could go to, and stay there. All right, Because if, if the one who was appointed to be the manslayer would find him, even before he made it to the city, he could, he could actually put him to death. All right, So this was God's provision of mercy, 
And I look at verse number one of, of uh, Deuteronomy chapter uh, 19. It says, when the Lord your God cuts off the nations whose land the Lord your God gives you and you dispossess them and settle in their cities and in their houses, you shall set aside three cities for yourselves in the midst of your land, which the Lord your God gives you to possess. You shall prepare the roads for yourself and divide into three parts the territory of your land, which the Lord your God will give you as a possession, so that any manslayer may flee there. Verse 4, now this is the case of the manslayer who may flee there and live when he kills his friend unintentionally, not hating him previously. All right, and of course in verse 5 it kind of gives an example. It says, as when a man goes into the forest and his friend uh, with his friend to cut wood and his, uh, his hand swings the axe to cut down the tree and the iron head st- uh, slips off the handle and strikes his friend so he dies. He may flee to one of these cities and live. So there's a, a biblical example right there on how it could happen. It could happen at any time. And so the avenger of blood uh, was not permitted to pursue him once that person got to the city of refuge. However, if the slayer, if the person who committed the killing wandered away from that city, they could, of course, be caught by the caught by the avenger of blood, and that avenger of blood had the authority to put that person to death. And then look at verse number 6 of of Deuteronomy 19. Otherwise, the avenger of blood might pursue the manslayer in the heat of his anger and overtake him because the way is long and take his life, though he was not deserving of death since he had not hated him previously. And then look at the last verse 10 of that chapter. So innocent blood will not be shed in the midst of your land, which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance and blood guiltiness be on you. All right, so in other words, God's giving Israel, the people of God, the, the, just the guidelines on how to carry out the Sixth Commandment. And I think these, these are very important for us to do. So uh, somebody, even though they killed somebody unintentionally, will lose their liberty. And, uh, and they could not go back to where their home was until the high priest in that city died. Now, of course, if the high priest was old, maybe he would only be there a short period of time. But if the high priest just got in there and he has plenty of health, you may be there a long time. And you may die before he dies. All right? But it was a measure that you would not be put to death, but you would have the mercy of God to run to that place. A second uh, kind of penalty would be that of uh, the loss of life. All right, uh, it says in Deuteronomy 19, you're, you're still there, verse 12 and 13, it says, Then the elders of the city shall send and take him from there, that's from the city of refuge, and deliver him, he was found out to be a murderer, and deliver him to the hand of the avenger of blood, that he may die. In verse 13, you shall not pity him, and uh, but you shall purge the blood of the innocent from Israel, that it may go well with you. In other words, the Bible is saying, listen, the death penalty was in place by God. The death penalty is in place by God. 
And of course, there would be another way they would pay. They would have to pay a fine. In Exodus chapter 21, um, interesting passage of scripture, a fight took place resulting in, uh, could, that could result in permanent injury or death. But in this case, notice what it says in Exodus 21, 18 and 19. That it says, if a man had a quarrel and once and one strikes the other with a stone or with his fist, and he does not die but remains in bed, if he gets up and walks around outside on his staff, then he who struck him shall go unpunished. He shall only pay for his loss of time and shall take care of him until he is completely healed. So in other words, what what does this person do? He pays a fine. But part of that fine is he has to pay for his, in other words, medical bills uh, or any kind of treatment that he needs, and then he has to take care of him until the guy's able to get off on his own and be completely healed. Then he's released. So see, there was that in Israel, and then of course there was what was called uh, a payment that fits the incident or the crime. Now right there again in Exodus 21, uh, a fight which strikes a woman with child, and she gives birth prematurely. Look what it says in verse 22 of Exodus 21. If, a man's, if, a, if men struggle with each other and strike a woman with child so that she gives birth prematurely, yet there is no injury, he shall surely be fined. The woman's husband may demand of him, whatever the woman's husband demands of him, and he shall pay as the judge's decide. So there's no real injury here, but there was a fight that caused the woman to give birth prematurely, and uh, therefore he's to be fined for that matter. And then then again, there also is what the, what, what the Bible calls an accidental non-negligent death of someone by an owner's animal. animal. If you look right there in Exodus 21, look at verse 28. If an ox gores a man or a woman to death, the ox shall surely be stoned and its flesh shall not be eaten, but the owner of the ox shall go unpunished. All right? So that's something you could not help. Uh, It's just like if somebody gets in a car accident, uh, sometimes uh, death could occur, but it wasn't intentional, and yet uh, that person, whatever may happen uh, there, it's not like they're going to be... uh, convicted of murder uh, if nothing happened. And then there's the careless, negligent death of someone whose uh, owner's animal was unruly and he didn't do anything about it. Look at verse number 29 of Exodus 21. If, however, an ox was previously in the habit of goring and his owner had been warned, yet he does does not confine it and it kills a man or a woman, the ox shall be stoned and its owner also shall be put to death. So this is negligent homicide, that a person did not take care of something that they knew was wrong, and it ended up killing someone. So, so the Bible, you see, the, you see the wisdom spread out concerning this commandment on how to handle it and how to different situations and circumstances can determine what kind of killing it was. That was very important. It's still important today. Uh, and, and nobody, nobody could be put to death in Scripture, uh, even when it came to capital punishment, who didn't have more than two witnesses, at least two witnesses. 
that were trustworthy witnesses. Uh, that person could not be uh, tried and convicted without reputable witnesses. Now, interesting enough, there are several areas uh, in which the Sixth Commandment would not forbid the taking of human life or life of another creature. And of course, that would fall under the category of, number one, the Sixth Commandment does not forbid capital punishment, which I just mentioned, imposed by an established court of law of a legitimate government. Like it says, capital punishment is defense of the image of God, where it says in Exodus 21, 12, he who strikes a man so that he dies shall surely be put to death. And of course, if somebody who dies, there was intent, and that was proven by witnesses in a court of law before judges, and that person would be, of course, uh, killed in Scripture. So it does not forbid that. Secondly, it does not forbid the killing of an enemy in just wars. All right, now, whatever, whatever a just war is, I don't know. I'm not here to define that right this morning. But nonetheless, because we live in a sinful, sin-cursed world with demonic influences, war is sometimes necessary to keep and defend peace. Is it not? Military killing of an enemy when in the interest of one's nation and freedom, is not forbidden in Scripture. In fact, you're going to find many examples. I'm not going to read all those examples, but there's examples in Scripture where God says to go and attack your enemies, all right, for, for the, so they would not teach you their lifestyle. And you're to war against them until they fall, until they're done and completed. Uh, completely annihilated. So war becomes an awful necessity sometimes. And I don't think we should ever be in a war that we shouldn't be there. Uh, and some of the wars we fought, we should not have ever gone there. And, and so going to war is a very serious matter. It should be the he- one of the heaviest and weightiest matter. And the reason why is because we send young people into battle uh, and they come back, they don't, sometimes they don't come back, or they come back severely wounded, whether it, it would be physically or mentally. And you know, in the military, suicide rate when they come back from uh, war-torn areas where they've seen people killed is very high. Uh, and, and so you never, it's like, like the songwriter says, war changes a person. You never, you don't come back the same. And you come back dealing with very heavy things and images in your mind that you can never get over. And so uh, war has to be taken very seriously by any nation. Uh, I think the reason why a country needs to keep a a strong, well-trained, well-equipped military is for the purpose of avoiding war. I like uh, what President Reagan used to say, that we are going to negotiate by strength. Uh, at the position, on the position of strength, right? That means, listen, I got a lot of muscle back here, all right, and I want to negotiate, and I don't want to use that muscle. Uh, and I think that's that's what that's why we always have to have a strong military, is because of that, because we live in a sin, sinful world. And not only that, we can't forget what the Bible says about Satan in John chapter eight. 
It says, you are your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning. He incites murder and is often the one who is the source of murder and wars. And of course, our human heart, James tells us, wars start right in our heart. And of course, it produces all kind of carnage when that happens. All right. And then, of course, there's, a, there, there's another one. The Sixth Commandment does not prohi- prohibit self-defense. In fact, if you're still there in Exodus, look at Exodus 22, verse 2 and 3. It says when, Exodus 22, verse 2 and 3, when someone had, a, had no choice but to kill in self-defense, if the thief is caught while breaking in and is struck so that he dies, there will be no blood guiltiness on his account but if the sun rises the sun this but if the sun has risen on him there will be blood guiltiness on his account he shall surely make restitution if he owns nothing then he shall be sold for his theft so there's going to be a payment there but if somebody has to defend them use self-defense, and then kill somebody that is actually not prohibited in Scripture. Of course, that has to be proved also. And then, of course, there would be this last thing, which has to do with not human beings but animals, that the Sixth Commandment does not prohibit the slaying of animals for necessary and responsible uses. Now, however, in, in general, Scripture does say that we ought to show care and kindness to animals because they are God's creatures. So be 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 kind to that pooch, right? Because uh, you know the animals are are unique creatures that God's given us. And uh, so the, these things I wanted to bring about because the Bible does mention them again, surrounding how the sixth commandment is to be used. Now. Deliberate violation of one of the first six commandments carry a mandatory death penalty because such violation invite the Lord's wrath and thereby threaten the foundation of, in, in the case of the Bible, the is Israel, Israelite society. But, of course, violation and disregard for these commandments will threaten the foundation of any society because these are things that should be in place for life to be safe to live and enjoyable to live. But there's a disease released and a dark cloud of impending gloom that hovers over a nation that is on the slippery slope of unrighteousness when they decide against God's sovereign mandate. In other words, they put aside the Ten Commandments and... When does that become evident in the nation? Well, by not putting murderers to death. You know, Israel had no jails. They had no prisons because of this commandment. Uh, See, what happens is that we have been convinced, at least in the general population, that the death penalty is barbaric. In the New Testament, but the New Testament has not annulled the capital punishment. According to the book of Romans, chapter 13, 
It says, for it, that's government, is a minister of God to you for good, but if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing, for it is a minister of God to an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. See, the government does not carry the sword for no reason. The sword refers to the power to take life and to make judgments. It is the designated instrument for capital punishment for those found guilty of murder. And the word of God never gives unauthorized private persons or groups the right to end human life or to be judge and jury on them. He only gives governments that right. But when a government stops doing it, then they're already setting aside God's mandate and they will suffer, that nation will suffer the consequences of it. Of course, another uh, way that becomes evident is by putting to death the innocent, making abortion of innocent children not only legal but acceptable, even telling women who are thinking of having an abortion that adoption is sinister advice and a violation of free choice. See, the myth, the myth, the fetus is not human, has become the driving thought in the new morality. Did you know that 97% of all abortions occur simply for convenience? Over 1 million abortions a year. It has become this nation's means of birth control. It was Peter Singer who years ago wrote in a medical journal called Pediatrics. He said this, we can know, this is not too long after uh, the court decision came down, Roe versus Wade. He says that we can no longer base our ethics on the idea that human beings are a special form of creation made in the image of God and singled out from all other animals. We can no longer do that. So today abortion is considered a reputable business raking in millions and millions of dollars annually. It was the past U.S. Surgeon General C. Everett Koop, I believe was a believer. He said this, more than a million unborn lives a year cannot be violently terminated without taking its toll on us as a nation. He went on to say, the story of the incarnation leaves no doubt, room for doubt. The angel told Joseph, that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. From the moment of conception, God had entered human life. Pregnancy, he said, begins with fertilization, not with implantation. So, again, see, these are things that we sometimes don't even think about anymore and and don't consider anymore, but it's righteousness that exalts a nation. When somebody lays aside the righteous standards of God that does not exalt the nation, that causes a nation to implode. From the inside, we'll, we'll implode. We don't have to worry about armies taking us over. We're, we're, we're doing a fine job destroying ourselves. And only because we have thrown God out, we've thrown his standard 
out of, of living life with each other and giving him, giving him honor, and we are going to suffer the consequences. See, that's what we're, we're doing actually right now. Evolutionary theories just have helped this along because they regard humans just as a higher form of animals. So we're not created in the image of God, we're just an animal. We can be discarded as, as someone wills. But this is a great sin before the Lord. And, and the Bible warns us about taking the life of the innocent. In fact, some of the idolatrous worship in the countries that Israel was told to go in and annihilate, were what they were doing is they were offering up children on the altars before their gods and burning them. So see, we're just doing the same thing. We just do it in a, in a very uh, nice, we package it in a nice way. You know, we convince people that, Oh, the, you know, everybody's doing it, and this is what we do. And, you know, if you don't want your life to be destroyed uh, it's by having children, then just... See, it's, all that stuff goes on, and uh, it's, it's destroying our nations. So Christians, we need to rise up, and we need to say something. We need to do something when we... When we when, and uh, you, you come a, across a young lady who's thinking about an abortion, you need to come alongside of her and thank the Lord for... All those who are believers, they're forgiving, forgiven of a sin. If, if that was part of their, their life, their, Jesus Christ's blood has covered that sin, and it'll cover all sins. But it's a good opportunity for you. You're going to know somebody who's going who's to be thinking about it, and they're not going to get the other point of view because nobody's given it to them unless there's a crisis pregnancy center that's got the guts to do it, and they're still in business to do that, to help women make a choice that is honoring to the Lord and that they're not going to regret for the rest of their life. All right? See, that's what we ought to do. And, and this, commandment moves, this commandment moves us to realize that, listen, just because we look the other way don't mean we're not guilty of certain crimes going on uh, in our world if we're not saying anything about it, if we're not doing anything with it, if we're just sitting there and just going along, allowing the stream to you know bring us down, you know downstream. Uh, we need to be swimming against the current, and and be uh, somebody who has a voice to say no, that's not right. That's not what God intended, and this is what you ought to be doing. So that leads me. All this leads me to the New Testament, and I like to like you to take your Bibles now and turn to the New Testament in Matthew chapter five. Matthew chapter 5, because the Lord takes up this issue in the Sermon on the Mount, and he begins to reiterate and uh, talk to the religious leaders about what, what was the real intention of the Sixth Commandment. And he brings that out in this portion of Scripture. Now, before I read it, I do want to say this, just say some things before it, that this Sixth Commandment, forbids and punishes the outward act. It restrains the end, not the beginning of the sin. That's what they were thinking. See, the person was liable to the judgment of the court and is guilty before the court if they are found guilty of this particular sin. See, Jesus, what he's doing in this passage of Scripture is he is uh, correcting Fel felicitously held 
interpretations of the Old Testament. He does not start off by telling them what the Old Testament said, but what they heard it said. That's why you see Jesus' use of this phrase when I read the passage, you have heard that the ancients were told, but I say to you, so, so Jesus is, is not negating something from the Old Testament, but something from their understanding of the Old Testament that was incorrect. So the people heard that anyone who murders under the Mosaic legislation had to appear before the court to be judged. But was the outward action, that is the mere external act of murder, the only thing at stake? Even in the Sixth Commandment, I would say this, absolutely not. It was not just external acts, but it was internal motive. Jesus goes much further than the Mosaic Law and explains it that murderers' despicable anger and venomous wrath lurk in the dark shadows behind the deed itself. That the root of sin, a corrupt, wicked, and selfish heart lie in the backdrop of the premeditation of murder. Now, let's look at the passage. Look what it says. It says in Matthew 5, verse 19, under this we, we see that uh, we see that this, this principle of the sixth commandment is related to li- as it's related to life today is to care for and protect the welfare of human life from the heart. Where it says in Matthew 5:19 Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven but whoever keeps and teaches them he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven for I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees you will not enter the kingdom of heaven so This passage of Scripture, verse 21, you have heard that the ancients were told you shall not commit murder, and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. And whoever says you fool shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. Now, this is a a very important understanding of what the Sixth Commandment actually meant and what it means for the church and for believers today is that Jesus is giving us the ethical attitude of this command and he's using, in this passage of Scripture here, three illustrations He's using the first illustration found in verse 22, right, is this. He talks about careless anger, or or excuse me, causeless anger, or unjust anger. For he says, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. So Jesus is saying on this first one, he is saying 
even anger toward a brother is forbidden. We are not even to have hard feelings against another brother in our heart or sister. So this causeless anger is in danger of judgment. That Jesus says it is not only the external deeds that are sinful and are in danger of judgment, but the innermost thoughts are sinful and are in danger of judgment. So how many people do you know that have been tried and convicted for anger and found guilty in the court of law? Nobody. But what if a person was tried first, was tried based on what they were thinking? The person would be guilty because anger is the seed and the bud of murder. But Jesus does not say that anger leads to murder. Jesus is saying anger is murder. Anger seems trivial in appearance, but the offense is deadly in Christ's eyes. So the principle with causeless anger is what matters is not merely the letter of the law, but the spirit, how we carry it out in our heart, what we think about someone else in our heart. Christ is saying as Christians to hate, to feel bitter, to have this unpleasant, unkind feeling of resentment toward another human being without a cause is murder and is subject to judgment. That's what he is saying. Now, the question is, what is anger with a cause? Well, how do we distinguish godly anger from that which is unlawful? Well, holy anger or righteous anger is very short-lived. For human beings, the Bible says be angry and sin not, right, in Ephesians? So we can be angry, but we have to be angry, and holy anger proceeds from love and righteousness. It also has in view the good of him against whom it is exercised. All right, And of course it looks to glorify God. For example, if, if you do meet somebody, uh, uh, let's say a woman who's thinking about an abortion, Holy anger should move you to tell her the truth and to help her through that process so she makes the right decision. See, that's what whole anger is a very powerful emotion. The Lord knows we can't just shut it off, but we can redirect it. And the Holy Spirit of God directs our anger to the right place where we can actually have righteous anger. But again, we cannot handle anger very long before it turns sinful. And what is unholy anger? It comes from pride and selfishness. It desires revenge against the one who it, it is directed at, and it seeks to injure the one who it is directed. See, anger is lawful only when it burns against sin. Actually, holy anger, too, can put your own sin to death. I hate what God hates, and I don't want it in my life, and I'm going to put it to death, right? So if you're going to kill anything, kill your sin, right? That's what we ought to be killing, and we do that by righteous anger. And then the Lord, though, gives another illustration in this passage, and he says this. He says, he taught, this is called contemptuous anger. It's, it's kind of a, like a snobbish, prideful content towards a person. And it says in verse 22, and whoever shall say to his brother, Raka, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. 
Now, if you notice, the level of the cord is going up, right? That this word, this is where words expl- or anger explodes into words because it says there, and whoever says to his brother, right? So this is words that are coming from an uncontrolled temper. And what is he saying to his brother? You empty-headed one. He's expressing contempt towards the man person. You stupid, you brainless idiot. Right? This is anger in danger, the Bible says, of the Supreme Court. This would be the highest level of court in Israel. The, the principle with contemptuous anger is that we can destroy a man's reputation and shake someone else's confidence in him or her by whispering criticisms or by deliberate fault-finding against that person. The Bible is saying that is murder and is worthy of judgment in the highest human court. And then he takes it up a notch. And he says in verse number 22, he gives a third illustration. And this is insulting anger or taunting anger. It says, whoever shall say you fool shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. See, calling a man a moral fool is to brand that man as a loose liver. To the Jews, a moron is significant, is, is, is really is equal to a rebel against God. So that one using this term assigned himself the passing of judicial sentence on someone else which he had no right to do, which he had no authority to do. So the Bible is saying that this murder in the heart is worthy of hell fire. It is the very word Gehenna, or the Valley of Hinnon, in, Jer- in southwest Jerusalem. This is the final uh, and eternal judgment. You cannot get a worse judgment than your sin landing you in hell. And the sin here, landing someone in hell, is the sin of a heart of murder. They never committed the act, but the intent has always been there. So the way we think about other people in our mind, whether we commit the act or not, is what the Lord's looking at. And he's really saying, listen, if the regular habit and pattern of your thinking is to murder people, if you had the chance, you would eliminate them? You would move them from out of your way? If that has been your thinking, then you are guilty of hellfire. You are guilty of the, the worst that judgment can bring, is to separate you from the Lord and his character and his standards forever. Look at 1 John chapter 3, verse 14 and 15. It says, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. And look at verse 15. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. In this chapter, you know what this chapter is talking about? This is chapter is talking about habitual sin. That someone who commits 
habitual sin is someone that does not have the seed of God in their heart. And so they're, no, they're not a child of God, they're, a child, they're still a child of Satan, even if they're, they're claiming to be a child of God. So, in other words, if this habitual pattern of sin, of a murderous mindset, has been in you all along, there's no salvation evident in you at all. You're not a believer, in other words. Of course, the Lord doesn't want us to have this kind of mindset in, in our, uh, as a believer. He want, This mindset has to go out. It has to be gone. It has to be, there, there is, in other words, there is no foundation at all in Scripture for you to have a just reason to be angry at someone long term. There's none. And why is that? If God removed his wrath from you, his anger from you because of Christ, what right do you and I have ever to have that anger displayed towards someone else because we think we're justified in it? We are believing the lie of Satan and not the standard of God. If that's our mindset, we're not aligned with Scripture at all. In fact, if we go back right there to the Matthew Matthew chapter 5 passage, you're going to find in that passage of Scripture that there is actually, the Bible tells us, here are, if you have that barrier in your life, well, how, there's, this is how you remove that barrier. So you can maintain a righteous standard before God. In other words, the Bible says, listen, the principle of the Sixth Commandment related to life today, uh, how barriers to anger are removed to maintain righteousness. Look at verse number 23 and 24, and it says this of Matthew chapter 5. If therefore you are presenting your offering at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go your way, First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and present your offering. So this is actually is urgent so one can keep unhindered worship with God. So we should actually take steps to remove the cause of the trouble, that God is concerned that you and I maintain a right relationship with him vertically and with others horizontally. All right, so he uses Old Testament pictures to bring across the point. A person who makes a ceremonial sacrifice to cover his mortal, his moral failure or sin, he brings the sacrifice before the priest, and he is in the very act of presenting that sacrifice to the priest so the priest can take it to God, and the offering, what is the offering meant to do? To cure, to restore, to forgive a broken relationship between that person and God. That's what the sacrifice is. So they can offer it, the blood can be shed, and the sin can be covered for a period of time. All right? So that's the picture that he's giving us in this passage of Scripture. All right? And so that means this, that there are, there's three things we do to remove the barrier of a habitual pattern of anger or a anger that is the sin that so easily besets you is you remember that it suddenly flashes through your mind that you have done something 
to a brother uh, fitted to provoke anger, angry feelings either with him or with you or both and lay it down, lay that offering down on the spur of the moment before the altar without handing it to the priest to be offered by him in your place. Don't do it yet because you're coming before God. Got to get rid of that sin first. You got to bring that offering. And how do I do that? Sometimes I have to go to somebody. And I have to say either I was angry with you or maybe I caused angry feelings to rise up in you and I want to clear the air. I want to get that out of the way. And the reason why is because I can't worship God with this in my heart. I have to get rid of it. So what you do is you remember first, right? Secondly, what you do is you leave, you interrupt your religious action and go to that errand right away. If any sacrifice was to be valid, Confession and restoration were involved. So it could mean going to that person, or it could mean calling them on the phone, it could be emailing them, it could mean texting them, sending them a letter, a card. Maybe the best way is face-to-face. So in the sight of God, there is no value whatsoever in an act of worship if we harbor known sin, if we remain angry with someone. You can't worship God and have these things festering in your heart. And once you do that, once you get it right, you know what you do? You go back. You go back and you return. You present your offering from a pure conscience, from a confessed heart, from a desire to make a relationship right, and you go and you make it right. And this is how barriers are removed between people and God and people and people. When we come to the Lord's table this morning, one of the first things we do is we come, all right, and we come with self-examination. We're examining our own heart, and we're also examining how we're doing with our brothers and sisters in Christ, and beyond that, and are we making those relationships right, and are we uh, confessing sin, are we uh, not harboring anything in our heart that should not be there, And are we getting them and laying them down and putting them to death? See, that's what we ought to be doing. Every first Sunday of the month is getting those things right so we can continue to worship God unhindered without that garbage collecting in our heart. So the bottom line is this, you shall not murder in your heart because that's where the root of that sin starts from. Let's pray. So this morning, Lord, again, the Word of God has evident information or abundant information and very clear principles on what you think of your commandments and how they're to be lived out and worked out. And I do pray, Lord, that as we think of these righteous standards that are beneficial for all of us in our worship to you, in our relationship with one another, that you would allow us to search our heart honestly. And Lord, if there has been anything in our heart festering, anything that that has not been confessed, I pray, Lord, that we wouldn't go one step further, that we would come before you in confession. And if that means we have to go to somebody and 
and make things right. I pray that we would do that. Give us the ability and strength to do that. And then we come back and we would resume our walk with you and our worship of you. So Lord, teach us to be people who are considering what's going on in our heart, inside of our heart, before it ends up on the fruit of our branches. I pray, Lord, that you would allow us to to examine ourselves deep in the recesses of what we think. Because you know what we think. You know the intents of our heart. Your word reaches deep down into dark places of our heart and exposes us for who we are. And I pray, Lord, as you do that, we know that when we come to Christ and what he accomplished on our behalf, we can have healing, we can have real forgiveness, we can have restoration, we can have a joyful and a peaceful spirit because you've taken care of things on that cross and our sin that we could have never done. And Lord, I pray we would rest in that today and that you would allow us to continue to have unhindered worship to you and good relationships with our brothers and sisters in Christ for the sake of the advancement of all that you say in the word of God and for the preaching of the gospel and for the the lack of grieving the spirit of God and quenching him, but we would have the power of God's spirit to live our Christian life. Bless us with that today and every day. And I pray that in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, also uh, this morning, remember, we are having the Lord's table. So as I mentioned already, the Lord's table has certain uh, benefits for us uh, that affect us, actually, as believers. The first benefit is self-examination. We should practice faithfully uh, before communion. The realization, thinking that the realization is we are uh, coming to think upon his death for us, and it should really be ample cause to bring us to search our our hearts and lives, uh, to confess any selfishness, any greed, any bitterness, any uncleanness, any sin of any sort, and to make relationships right before God. I think a second benefit would be that uh, we bear public testimony of our faith in Christ, that he died for our sins. And and no one really has any right to participate in this service who does not believe that he is redeemed or she is redeemed by the blood of Christ and has walked in the waters of baptism and now is uh, partaking of the elements because they understand this represents the gospel. And then a a third benefit of the Lord's table is that it really vividly brings to our mind the sufferings of Christ. He actually did this. He became a man. He took on uh, the full load of sin for us, the full wrath of God he took upon himself for us so he can take our sin and nails of the cross and he can put his righteousness on our account. That's the great hope we have and joy we have in being Christians. And then I think the last thing, Many other things, but the last thing is that the Lord, it brings to our mind and it, 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 it benefits us that uh, we're, we're to remember the truth of the gospel until the Lord comes, until he takes us out or he comes. So as I say often in the Lord's table, we look back to Calvary 
and we rejoice at our redemption. No one could be saved if it wasn't for Calvary. I mean, people in the Old Testament look forward to the cross. We're looking back at the cross, right? But whatever way you're looking at the cross, it's got to be the cross that you come through to be saved, right? And so we gather at the table, and we are reminded that he's going to return. And until he returns, uh, we are to be faithful worshipers and followers of Christ and honor him in our whole life. That's what we're to be doing. And so why don't we take a few minutes as I uh, just... Step out for a minute and uh, and just prepare your hearts, and then we'll come back. And the men, you can come forward who are serving today, and uh, and we'll partake of the Lord's elements.